Welcome to So Help Me Pod, a podcast concerned with the theological moorings of the presidents and how their public policy was affected by those theological moorings. Uh, My name is Rob Lee. I am a doctoral candidate at the Pacific School of Religion, and in less than a month, hopefully, Lord willing, and the people consenting, I will have my doctoral degree from this institution based on what I'm working on here and what I have studied. My... um, counterpart in this my colleague in learning and he's not going to get the degree though unfortunately is my younger brother scott who is here with us today uh to hear about uh our next president in the discussion our eighth podcast in the series uh our eighth of the main podcast there's obviously bonus episodes but franklin d roosevelt our 32nd president of the united states he lived from 1882 to 1945 and served for almost four terms from 1933 to 1945. There's this amazing scene in one of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's press conferences uh, where a reporter asks the political philosophy of the 32nd president of the United States. The account recalls that the stalwart statesman paused, considered his words, and responded, I am a Christian and a Democrat. By this point in the 20th century, a pious American public religion had taken shape and held its grip during the nation, uh, on the nation during the height of the Great Depression and during the Second World War. Yet the president was clear where his allegiances and priorities were held, down to the, even the sequence of his answer. To this day, the legacy and priorities of FDR are admired across both sides of the aisle, and his progressive policies stand as a litmus test for every Democratic president that has held the office since his long-tenured administration. So let's get into it. Facts and figures about our 32nd president, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, FDR was elected in 1932 in the 1932 election after serving as governor of New York State. He would go on to shepherd the United States not only through the grippling throes of the Great Depression, but also the United States' entrance and participation in World War II following the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. It has been the tradition of previous presidents to serve a maximum of two terms, a nod to the first two terms that President Washington served as our first president. Franklin Roosevelt would blow past that tradition to be elected to four sequential terms in office. He would die in office during his fourth term, having served 4,422 days in office. The 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution would be passed and ratified in 1951, signaling any president after Harry S. Truman, who was grandfathered in, would not be able to serve two terms in office, uh, more than two terms in office as president of the United States. That meant that President Dwight D. Eisenhower was the first president to reap the limitations of the 21st Amendment, often credited being passed in large part uh, to FDR's uh, stranglehold on the office for four terms. Before being elected president, FDR had significant service in the United States government. 
His rap sheet included tenure as a member of the New York State Senate, Assistant Secretary of the Navy in President Woodrow Wilson's administration, and as the 44th governor of New York. In 1921, he contracted an illness that caused the paralysis of his legs, confining him to a wheelchair. However, the veracity of his paralysis was concealed to the public through various tactics, leading the discovery of this reality to wait until after his death in 1945. That said, Scott, had you asked Nana or Granddaddy uh, prior to 1945 in their young age, but still they remember FDR as president, what would it have been like to see him? They would have thought of him standing or sitting. They would have not seen him in a wheelchair. Roosevelt won in 1932 in what many consider to be a national realignment of values. Uh, this was uh, this would continue throughout Roosevelt's administration and time in office. Uh, and Roosevelt would coin the notion that the president's first hundred days in office were consequential and defining for the administration. He took swift action to protect protect financial interests at home and ensure foreign partnerships abroad. Um, part of that would become known as the New Deal, which we still talk about to this day. This would be a blueprint for subsequent administration and presidential staffers. You often hear about when a new president comes in the first hundred days as being the most consequential, and that is due to Roosevelt's time in office. Uh, during his second uh, term, he made a move to pack the Supreme Court uh, to further his political maneuverability. We talk about packing the Supreme Court today. There's been advocates for Joe Biden to pack the Supreme Court after all that's happened. Uh, though this was a wash, it proved he wasn't invincible politically. He had places that could get him and could cause him to, to be down in the weeds. Um, that said, this attempt also formed partnerships with Republicans and with Democrats that would prove invaluable in the coming war. By 1940, the prevailing force of isolationism was uh, waning from the American consciences. Uh, up until that point, uh, many Americans felt that there was no need for us to enter the war in Europe or abroad. There was no need for us to engage in even providing weapons or um, you know, giving supplies to those people. We, we just wanted to mind our own business on the North American continent. That meant that FDR was tasked with preparing for what seemed uh, to be an inevitable conflict. They kind of gathered that eventually something might happen that would thrust them into the war, whether they liked it or not. So FDR was working on the sidelines, and that proved right, because on December 7th of 1941, the president's preparations would be necessary when the Empire of Japan unleashed an attack on Pearl Harbor, a military establishment on the island of Hawaii. The brazen attack on the United States would require the president's hand to respond and attack in kind. The aggression by the Japanese would kill 2,403 civilians and soldiers that day. The day after the attack, on December 8th, uh, in one of the most consequential speeches uh, that President Roosevelt ever gave, uh, he gave a speech to the United States Congress. And the subsequent vote from Congress would declare war on behalf of the United States against the Empire of Japan. And subsequently, Nazi Germany and the rest of the Axis powers would declare war on the United States on December 11th. The United States would re respond in kind. Suddenly, the last uh, of the modern world was thrust into a conflict on a global scale. Isolationism and anti-war sentiments evaporated overnight in America, and the war effort would prove consequential in modernizing the United States' production abilities. Uh, 
you think about it this way. One night, people are actually not okay with the idea of going to war with Japan or the Nazis. The next night after Pearl Harbor, they're gung-ho ready to go. Uh, and that included providing production facilities and war capabilities um, to, to the federal government. Um, FDR was one of the first presidents to employ his ability as a figurehead to accomplish his methods. His bully pulpit was magnified with his employment of the fireside chats on the radio that gave updates about everything from the New Deal to the war effort. The war would take its toll on a sickly president. And you remember President Roosevelt was one of the first presidents to employ also aircraft and travel across seas in ways that presidents had not enjoyed before. And after the Yalta conference, he responded to a message and make his commitments to preventing uh, Stalin's war crimes from, from becoming even worse. Uh, he knew that he was an ally with Stalin and the Soviet Russia, but he also saw an impending conflict with them that might be on the horizon. That would prove correct as well. He would go to hot springs that came to be known as the Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia, during FDR's tenure as president. On April 12th, 1945, the 32nd and longest serving president of the United States died. Franklin Roosevelt was 63 at the time of his death. The president's death shocked a nation, and the world began to turn again, even still as Germans, Germany surrendered in the 30-day mourning period for the now-deceased president. Many were saddened he didn't get to see the victory he had worked so hard to achieve. The newly minted 33rd president of the United States, FDR's former vice president, Harry S. Truman, ordered flags to remain at half-staff despite the victory in Europe. He dedicated the victory to the former president um, in his honor and in his stead. Japan would surrender in September of 1945, ultimately ending a global conflict the likes of which the world had never seen. It's also important... Um, to note that without FDR's contributions, that war might have come out significantly differently. We talk a lot about FDR's contributions during the war years. What we don't talk about is FDR's faith, and that's in large part due to probably the progressive policies that overshadowed any faith that he might have. But I think it's important to note that there's been significant scholarship recently on his faith and public life, and that's something I'd like to talk about now. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, faith is both a complicated and sometimes contested matter. If you open this recently, it's an amazing book. It's out by Erdman's. It's titled A Christian and a Democrat, a Religious Biography of, FDR, of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Um, it is amazing because we talk about how there are some historians that never that just completely uh, glaze over his faith, don't want to talk about it at all. Nothing to be remarked there. Yet recent scholarship has proven that FDR was a man of great and deep abiding faith. Um, the book chronicles some of the more private correspondence and verified account encounters uh, that FDR had with his rector, who, uh, for those of you who might not know, in the Episcopal tradition, a rector is a priest in charge of a church. Um, so you could see them being as like a pastor. So this is this is his correspondence with his pastor and his other close friends regarding his rather private faith. Um, in many ways, Roosevelt's quiet faith was a mooring and a guide for his life, but it wasn't something that he wore around his neck. It wasn't an albatross around his neck that he felt the need to show off or show to people and say, look, here's my faith and here's why. That said, there could also be other moments where Roosevelt's faith was on full display. 
Roosevelt offered a prayer that is not only synonymous with his presidency, but indeed may be one of the well, most well-known acts of public piety during World War II and beyond. On June 6, 1944, uh, as Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day to begin the retaking of France, the President of the United States recognized the need to call the nation to prayer. That said, no invasion of this magnitude had ever been undertaken in human history. There was no blueprint about how to give voice to what was happening. There was no way to write down or to open a book of common prayer and find there for the invasion of D-Day. Summoning his closest confidants, friends, and companions, FDR showed them and had their input as he penned the prayer that would mount the full force of prayer of a young of a nation as their young men faced down the Axis forces. The day would go down in history as a moment of reckoning for the Nazis and their allies and a victory of allied forces as they advanced through continental Europe. President Roosevelt would die in April of 1945, but, not, but only after sketching a plan for a post-war world. This vision included the United Nations, an organization his successor and uh, the post-war United States of America would champion and spearhead. This vision of a united world was grounded in his convictions of faith and equity, of justice, and of peace. His funeral wishes included that he would be uh, he would abdicate a state funeral. Remember, they were they were still at war when FDR died, even though they saw the the harbingers, the the, the messengers that war might be ending soon. Still, over five hundred thousand people gathered in D.C. along his funeral procession route. There was little in the way of pomp and circumstance, no sermon to write home about, only scripture and hymns close to Roosevelt. A man of simple faith and conviction, it did not require full-throated brass, but insisted on a quiet and peaceful end. You know, Scott, it's interesting to take a moment here, personal privilege. It's interesting with, with President Roosevelt's faith. I see our dad a lot, a, quiet, a man of quiet conviction that is both purposeful and faithful, it's not boisterous. It's not out there. It's not trying to convert people. Uh, he just handled things. There's 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 records of him just handling things and doing stuff as he was able to while he was vestryman. He was on the vestry of his church uh, in in New York, and so so he would just handle things. He would take care of it. He would uh, you know he was senior warden at one point while he was also president. So you could see how these things both unite and. Um, cause him to be just a good person. Uh, he handled the issues, this handling of issues, the way he handled his issues uh, stands as a testament to his faith of works. Uh, you know, faith without works is dead, as James says in the scripture, uh, but it isn't showy. It's not a means by which he shows off. And so there's the man, the 32nd president of the United States. Obviously, we could go into so much more over the four terms, but I think that gets us started. Scott, what questions do you have? Here we go. My first question is uh, Episcopalian at the time. Can you give me a little bit of the history of how it came over to America? I don't exactly remember off the top of my head. Was it kind of like it came over on the boat, kind of like Methodism? Wesley came over and he was like, oh, this is a good thing. I'm going to start. And how different is the uh, British Episcopalian to the American Episcopalian experience? That's a really good question. Uh, so as you remember, maybe in the earlier conversations that we had, the Anglican church was the church of the Episcopal that would become the Episcopal church. 
And so much of their things are very similar now to this day. It's interesting to note that by this point, uh, one of the Episcopal facts that might be of interest to you, Scott, as someone who likes to sing and and, and is a professional singer, is that by this point, parts of the National Cathedral had been completed. Um, and the Episcopal, the, 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 the National Cathedral is, of course, an Episcopal church. Um, FDR would have gone to services and experienced some sort of services, and there's lists of them we can find, obviously, uh, that he would have experienced there. And then also it was interesting because by that point, uh, you wouldn't see it as this huge, you know, uh, beautiful edifice that we have today. In, in That wouldn't have happened until the 1980s when George H.W. Bush was president and they capped off the National Cathedral from construction. So you think about that. They started way back when uh, Woodrow Wilson's buried in there. But by this point, you've got a church that is both robust and growing. Uh, it's predominantly white. Um, as it has been and continues to be, yet it is starting. It continues to remain. I would say the 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 state church, and I don't mean to suggest that there is a state church, but when people needed to go for religious purposes, they would go to the National Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church. Uh, also, you will note at this point too. There's uh, I have this wonderful picture uh, that I love to share with people. I may make it the background for our YouTube, uh, but. But it's a, a FDR and Winston Churchill in front of Foundry United Methodist Church um, during the war. Uh, one year, uh, FDR or, or uh, Winston Churchill was here uh, for worship uh, for Christmas Eve. And if you go into the uh, Foundry Church today, where I've actually had the opportunity to preach, and that's one of my cool connection points that I really love about that, you can see the pew where FDR and Winston Churchill sat for that Christmas Eve service. Uh, in the 1940s. So again, you see the kind of connections in DC. There's a lot of churches that people have attended or presidents have attended. You can look at National City Christian Church. LBJ attended there. The National Cathedral seems to be a popular one for people. St. John's Episcopal Church in Lafayette Square, which is right across the street from the, the, the White House, is a lot of times where Barack Obama would attend. And so you see how all of this comes together to create um, a religiosity that's in the district, but it's for a much larger nation. Uh, my second question is, what hymns were played or sung at his funeral? So it's really interesting. Um, the, 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 the hymns that, that Roosevelt chose were both patriotic, but they were also introspective faith-wise. Um, at the East Room service, which is one of the funeral services he had, um, songs were sung from Eternal Father, Strong to Save, and Faith of Our Fathers. Um, it's also really interesting, uh, that at the Episcopal service in Hyde Park that he had where he was interred, uh, they didn't sing anything, but the Episcopal, uh, priest intoned, uh, as the coffin was being lowered to the ground, he sang an old Episcopal hymn, now the labor task is o'er, now the battle day is past, now upon the farther shore, lands the voyager at last father in thy gracious keeping leave we now thy servant sleeping and they uh, he ended up using scripture wise he used a lot of what comes from the book of common prayer and is prescribed for a funeral service including uh the the, the famous words from john's gospel i am the resurrection and the life saith the lord he that believeth in me though they were dead yet shall he live and whoever whosoever believeth in me shall never die um, and these were, of course, attended to by not only clergymen, but bishops. 
Um, so, so both both rectors and clergy and bishops as well engaged in uh, celebrating the life of the 32nd president. Uh, my last question was, uh, so FDR was an Episcopal throughout his life. Uh, everyone else around him was his family Episcopal. Like what, what started him into the Episcopal church? I know a lot of presidents change when they get into office. How does that work? That's a really good question. Uh, for much of FDR's faith, he was surrounded by Episcopalians. He was, uh, uh, he was kind of this. Uh, you think of American families. The Roosevelts are one of them. Um, of course, uh, one of Roosevelt's FDR's relatives, Theodore Roosevelt, had served as president. Now he was Dutch Reformed, but you can see that kind of old style religion being very popular. And I don't mean old style in terms of like gospel, like what we might think of, but that old kind of. That 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 serious stately religion, that high church, almost. high church is a very good way to put it. Um, that, that that might be celebrated there. So that's really interesting. It's a really interesting question. The Roosevelts were a big family, uh, but I would say that most of them had a sense of a stately high church religion, like that of the Episcopal Church. Are most presidents like that? Like they want a higher church, or is that up until a point you can see that there's high church, and then we kind of come down from there into more of like the uh, Christian-y type churches like Baptist and some of the other ones, less high. I would say or... that, 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 that a, so majority of our churches, our presidents have been Episcopalian, which is not the highest. I mean, the Episcopalians, the Episcopal Church is not one of the three largest denominations by far. Uh, in the country. And yet, so there is that stately kind of regalness that the Episcopal Church offers that I think people see as the seriousness of the uh, the office of state. That's just my opinion there. I don't have anything to back it up, but I would guess that's one of the reasons why many of the more recent people have been Episcopalian, and that's why. You see Methodist Presbyterians, uh, actually not as many Baptists as you might think. Unitarians are really interesting. Um, so you see the the widespread, but the majority of the presidents, uh, with the exception of a few more recent presidents, have been quite faithful, even if their faith is not public. Um, and, and so, but that when their faith is public, it's often, you know, even, you know, it can be even our evangelical president or president who claims to be evangelical, Donald Trump, uh, attended uh, services at the National Cathedral. So you could see why there would be the need to um to have a, a space at least for convening and oftentimes that has been the episcopal church now when john f kennedy died he of course was 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 uh, um his funeral was at the roman catholic um basilica there so i mean there's there's reasons why there would be differences from that but the majority of church of presidents have have in some way interacted with say a national cathedral or an episcopal church that's all Awesome. Well, President Roosevelt's New Deal, the establishment of Social Security, the administration's war policy made him the standard bearer for uh, progressive policies ever since the end of his presidency in 1945. His political prowess and his ability to unite a nation under a particular banner endeared his legacy as one of the most effective leaders in the 20th century. It was a crowded field as well. Despite the trappings of his life and now sometimes viewed as archaic views, he remains a figure well-liked and admired by many a Republican and Democrat in this country and many world leaders beyond the shores of this country. So what's up next? Uh, when President uh, Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, uh, Vice President Harry S. Truman was summoned to the White House. 
Not knowing the occasion, the VP took a leisurely stroll from his office to the administrative offices. There he was greeted by First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who relayed the news that the 32nd president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, had died. This meant that the vice president had ascend who had ascended to the role of president of the United States suddenly and immediately. The now president Truman collected himself and looked at Eleanor to say, is there anything I can do? To which the former first lady responded, is there anything I can do for you? You're the one in trouble now. Next week, we will explore the man who probably shouldn't have been president based on all accounts, but rose to the occasion to become one of the more popular leaders of the 20th century. On So Help Me Pod, we'll talk about our nation's 33rd president, Harry S. Truman. You've been listening to So Help Me Pod, a podcast of Beloved Journal in conjunction with Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. The podcast is offered in partial completion of the Doctor of Ministry degree for the Reverend Robert W. Lee. All opinions and insights offered are solely owned by that of those who offered them and do not reflect the views of stakeholders in the project. There have been 45 men and 46 presidential administrations, all of them unique. Some of them have been more interesting than others, some of them more terrifying than others. All have been part of the grand expression of democracy on the North American continent and part of the wider conversation of self-governance in the world. These men have failed profoundly, and we have failed profoundly in following their leadership along with our own sometimes antiquated and backwards ways of viewing and acting in the world. That said, this form of leadership is unlike few other, and the greatest gift we have has been given in the ways in which the American experiment continues to prosper despite our terrible misgivings. We are better off because of these men, and we are forever in their debt. For more information, visit www.robleethenumber4.com slash presidents.